0: Hello, I'm Anthony Day, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 17th of April. My guest this time is Rebecca Henderson who is a professor at Harvard University and Harvard Business School and among other roles She is a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's author of Leading Sustainable Change and Accelerating Energy Innovation, and her upcoming book, which is due for publication at the end of this month, is Reimagining Capitalism. Now, Rebecca, I think in the last very short few weeks since the pandemic has taken over the world, a lot of people are saying we really need to reimagine capitalism because it has become absolutely clear that the market cannot deal with uh, events such as these. What's your take on it?
1: I completely agree. I think COVID-19 has highlighted why we need to reimagine capitalism. I do believe, however, that it was fairly clear beforehand that we needed to do something. Um we were spectacularly failing to deal with with climate change, and we were also failing to deal with deal with accelerating inequality, uh, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, it, it was clear that the system, if we may call it that, was not working for everyone, and was not going to leave our grandchildren and their children with a with a, a livable planet. And what I think COVID has done is really highlight those issues. That's clearly not the case. For me, there are two key examples of that. The first is our total dependence on the healthcare system and on the courage and bravery of people who get up every morning and go to work and come back to their families and know they're putting both themselves and their children and their partners at risk. That's not something that the market can buy. We cannot function as a society without individuals standing up and and doing the right thing. And I think COVID is really reminding us of that. And that it's not just about me and mine and now, but about us and later and the common good. And that's always been a tension in our society, but COVID really shows it up. The second example that really captures the need to reimagine capitalism for me is the spectacle of the President of the United States telling the individual states that they should bid for vital healthcare equipment. Yeah. And, and states bidding against each other, using the market to allocate life-saving equipment at a moment of national emergency. The total failure of the federal government to step up early enough or on a serious enough scale to uh, take a coordinative role is is mind-blowing but but what's amazing is it's been going on for a while it it's not just COVID.
0: (laughs) okay okay well of course free market is the philosophy of the american government it's very much until very recently anyway been the philosophy of our conservative party here in the uk so it well clearly free markets have been found wanting as you've just described But once we get through this, and I think it's going to take a long time and it's going to be a very gradual exit, but once we do get through this, where do you see the governments going? Do you see them taking us back to where we were before? Or is this time for more government intervention on behalf of the people at large and which incidentally will reduce, hopefully,
1: inequality? Nobody knows. I think it's possible to paint some very dark scenarios. I'm particularly worried about the increasing concentration of business power. I think a lot of small and mid-sized firms will have difficulty, uh, both this year and perhaps going forward, and it provides an opening for large firms to get even bigger. I mean, one of the things that should be clear is, is I'm a huge fan of the free market. In its place and at the right time, it is seriously amazing. I mean, I don't think we're going to fix any of the major problems we face without enlisting it. But you're right. My hope coming out of this emergency is that governments will step up to their role as providers of public goods, public health, most obviously, but also a livable climate. And as um, let's call them watchdogs or guardians or referees of business, um, because without a referee, without a government setting the rules of the road, things like a minimum wage, things like perhaps mandatory sick, uh, sick pay, um, you're, you're not in the long run going to have a functional society. So I really hope governments are going to step up. I think it's likely. Um, I think there's a renewed understanding of what governments can do in these kinds of moments.
0: Right. How long do you think the pressure will come on to governments to make them change towards something which is more inclusive? I mean, for example, do you have a view on Extinction Rebellion? Is that going the right way towards actually getting things changed?
1: Can I start with something easier than Extinction Rebellion? Okay. okay. <laughs> Let me start with inequality and the groundswell in the US. Um, The way I hear it phrased here is wait, wait, wait. We've said that some people are essential. The people keeping the lights on, running the food chain, delivering our groceries, and yet we've been paying them really not enough to live on. They have no savings. They have very patchy access to healthcare. And no, no dis, no sick leave. So when they get sick, you know, I, I can't afford to be sick. I have to keep working. How else am I going to uh, to keep my family? And I think that's been so highlighted that I think the kind of labor legislation that many people have been arguing for in the U.S. for the last twenty years has a much better chance of passing. Um, I'm very hopeful we'll see a change in administrations um, and that that administration will come in with a very strong, let's really address inequality, let's make this a society that works for all of us. Now, you asked me about climate change (laughs) and whether governments will come in strong on climate change. So I think it's very important that we frame climate change as an issue about people and communities. I mean, I believe it's an enormous threat to the long-term health of all of our societies. And I think it's really important to communicate that, that climate change is a major driver of um, long-term damage to human health, that burning fossil fuels is killing people right now. I'm sure you've seen the statistics that it seems plausible that the reduction in air pollution from burning less fossil fuels has prevented more deaths than all the than 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 COVID. I mean, it's it's just amazing um, that we tolerate people burning these fuels that routinely attack the lungs of women and children and and dump mercury into all our blood. I mean, statistically, I my blood is full of mercury.
0: Yeah, well, this this is the this is the question: Are we going to go back to business as usual in the knowledge that this is the sort of damage that we are right.
1: causing? So I'm really helpf- hopeful that this renewed that our renewed awareness of health first, common health first, will help us talk about climate change in a way that really builds political support for it. Now I'm very sympathetic to extinction rebellion. Sometimes I want to go out and chain myself to railings because. Like What are we thinking? The idea that we have the technology and the resources to address climate change and somehow we're busy or, you know, we can't get it together. Now, I'm very aware that I believe at least the costs of fixing climate change should be borne by the people who have the resources to fix it. Mm -hmm. That, Mm -hmm. um, for example, I would advocate replacing a payroll tax with a carbon tax. So instead of giving employers an incentive not to employ people, crazy, let's give people an incentive not to use carbon. (laughs) And if we have more money left over from the carbon tax, let's send it back in the form of a, you know, a tax and dividend, So we make burning fossil fuels expensive, which gives business the incentive to stop doing it, which lets them use all their innovation and productivity and and sort of really focus on doing that because now they have an economic reason to do so. And uh, and let's send the money back to the people who need it, you know, the people at the bottom of the income distribution. Okay.
0: Um, but you're, you're talking about some really fundamental changes to some very, very uh, large and powerful industries. Now, you've spoken about how business in your book and in um, uh, videos on your website, you've spoken about how business can be the key to this. But people have been making the case for sustainable business for a long time. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Bob Willard and there are many others. Um <laughs> And the thing is, while we have people like uh, the the CEO of JP Morgan saying we need suddenly to take these things seriously, while we have people like Paul Polman at Unilever, who's doing vast good things, you also have people like Bolsonaro in um, Brazil, who is driving business into the Amazon to plunder whatever it can find. And you have people like the uh, trader in the last couple of weeks who... Invested $27 million and came out with $2.4 billion. This is business at its naked profit-seeking. And this is not business which is going to do anything for the common wheel, which is not going to do anything to help the world uh, avoid climate change. How can we actually change these powerful actors to act on our behalf?
1: When I was trying to sell my book, I was with a major publishing house in New York, And the editor looked at me and he said, Rebecca, business saves the world. You have got to be kidding. Don't you read the papers? (laughs) So I'm with you. I mean, I absolutely get that simply saying, oh, business will step forward and step up and uh, clearly not the case. So let me very briefly summarize why I think business could nonetheless play a super important role. So first, we absolutely have to change the rules. Changing the rules is the only way in the long run that we will address these kinds of massive problems. And so it has to be all about, in the end, political, social, cultural change. The question is, how do we get there? It's not a done deal that will come out of this emergency with, with government saying, okay, I understand, I need to focus on the common good, I need to set the rules for the long term, I need to address these issues. That's not a done deal. I really hope it's the case, but it's not a done deal. So what my book is about is the idea that having some significant fraction of business making the argument for change might increase the odds that government will act. That's essentially what my book's about. And as you know, because you've been polite enough to read it, I lay out four steps as to how business starting right now in their own organizations can begin to build that momentum for change. Because I think at root, this is easy to say, but I think at root, we're talking about a moral shift as well as a political shift. No business person right now would say, hey, I'm going to employ more child labor because you know what? It is fabulously profitable. Nobody would say that in public. Alas, it still goes on, but it's everybody knows it's not okay. You wouldn't boast about it at dinner parties. You wouldn't tell your customers. And what we need to do is make sure, I think, that climate change becomes just like that, that you know, saying, well, I I throw carbon dioxide out the window. And of course, I lobby against climate legislation, because climate legislation would reduce my profits. And people do say that it should not be okay. And I think what we need to see is this major shift in business. And I think you've got these pioneers moving forward, raising, uh, raising awareness among employees and customers. And my hope we could get a virtuous circle going where it becomes increasingly unacceptable to move into the Amazon and take as much money as you can get. Um, And I think Brazil is an example of just what we're talking about, which is before Bolsonaro, the private sector was playing an important role in the preservation of the Amazon and supporting the politics that led to that. When the politics shifted, everything fell apart, as you said.
0: Right. Right. Do you not think, though, that once we get through this uh, pandemic and all the um, turmoil which it's brought with it, people are going to say, I really haven't got time to look at doing things to save the world. I've just been driven almost to the wall. I've got to do everything I possibly can to to claw my business back, to get back into operation, to re-employ my employees. I've got my mind focused on survival.
1: So, I sit on the board of two large public companies, and I understand at least a little bit of what it means to be trying to run a business at this moment, and it's super tough. I mean, to a first approximation, either you're running absolutely flat out in the midst of a pandemic, trying to keep your people safe, or Your revenue has dropped by 50% or, I mean, I have a bunch of friends. I have a a friend who built a software company. For 30 years, he worked in building this company. Amazing job. 200 employees worth approximately $50 million. His revenue went to zero. Why? Because he was writing software that sold tickets for live events. Zero revenue. So... Of course, as we come out of this pandemic, business will be focusing on making sure they can rebuild. And I think that's understandable. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't like yell at people who are doing that. It's not helpful. At the same time, I think there are at least three forces that work for us. One is that the knowledge that the world could suddenly change, that disasters are real that when that happens, you would have done anything to fix it before it happened. I don't think that knowledge will altogether go away. So I think there'll be the kind of acknowledgement that things might shift. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, Who knows? But I think that could happen.
0: The, the, so, the thing, though, they're just taking up that point, yeah. um, the pandemic has happened almost overnight. The thing about climate change is that we know it's going to happen, but it's happening so gradually. It's like the boiled frog syndrome, which I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, people think, well, it's just not quite bad enough for me to have to do anything about it. It's, this, if we do get, I mean, if we get a cataclysmic event like um, a tidal surge, which overwhelms New York or something, then maybe that's the sort of incentive which will make people think just as this pandemic has done. But if climate change gradually, gradually, gradually gets worse, is the incentive there?
1: Um, So two points. First, I think we're going to see a repetition of things like the California wildfires and the Australian fires Mm -hmm. and the floods in Jakarta and the storms that hit the Carolinas twice. Mm -hmm. Um, And the flooding in Houston, and the flooding in the Midwest, and the failure of the harvests in Africa. Alas, I'm afraid I think we're going to see more of these kinds of events. But I agree with you. For many people, it'll still be later, later, later. But I think the good news there is that it's increasingly clear that there's an economic case in many uh, businesses to be made for switching to clean energy. I mean, for most businesses, it's only about 3% of costs. Mm. And in m- many companies are finding that the declaration of, you know, we're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. We have a long-term purpose to contribute to our society, to care about public health, and addressing climate change is a big part of that. We're going to switch. It's going to be a marginal increase in costs. But as my research suggests... There is for many firms the probability of a significant increase in productivity, in innovation, in creativity. I mean, so many people are not working at their full capacity. They go to work because you have to go to work. And I think the research is now overwhelming. And I try and summarize some of it in my book together with some good stories about no, no, no. But when people believe that what they're doing makes a difference, that they're part of something larger than themselves, it's not just happy talk. It really helps and it helps the bottom line.
0: Changing tack perhaps a little bit. Uh, What do you think about the concept of universal basic income as a way of perhaps smoothing the recovery and in fact also um, reducing inequality in due course?
1: So... I love the idea of cash transfers to those um, who have less income. I think there's a huge amount of evidence to suggest that, for example, the fastest way to help a homeless person is to give them cash. Um, And there have been a number of experiments done on this that, uh, you know, if you're homeless, oh, we have this service and that service and this service. And... If you're mentally ill or if you have other issues, absolutely that's appropriate. But for people who are down on their luck and sleeping rough, what they need is cash. And I think we have too many jobs which don't pay enough. So I'm a huge fan of raising incomes at the bottom. I don't know enough about the policy details. I have colleagues who do to know in which situation, which policy makes the most sense. I see UBI as one potential instrument that, you know, has some strengths, has some weaknesses. I certainly think I shouldn't be getting UBI, like that makes no sense. Um, So has to be some correction for, you know, people who are doing okay. Um, But in general, I think um, rebalancing income, I think Some of that can be done by straight redistributive taxation. But because I'm such a fan of like free enterprise, I think it's also super important to um, create more jobs and make sure those are really good jobs. Mm. So at least in the U.S., employers have been able to really uh, push, um, push their way to the bottom on wages. And some of the big firms like, say, Walmart are going like, whoa, that was a mistake. You know, if you're paying people so little money that they're dependent on food stamps and Medicaid and they're, you know, just making their lives work is impossible, that's not good for business. That's not good for us right now. That's certainly not good for business in the long term. 50% of the children in the U.S. were taking uh, government-subsidized lunches. I mean, half the population in the U.S. is nutritionally at risk. This is a problem for business. It really is. And so I think finding ways to raise wages and to create more good jobs might be just as important as sending people checks. And in many cases might be more effective because, um, you know, a good job is a source of immense dignity and pleasure and meaning. Working two jobs, riding the lousy public transportation for three or four hours to get to them having to leave your children with strangers for far too long not being able to feed them properly that's not good i mean we have to address that problem but um i think you know to be a moment the pointy-headed academic both supply and
0: demand (laughs) all right there is an elephant in the room though isn't there or some would say called artificial intelligence which will dehumanize labor. Now, if the values, if the profits from artificial intelligence go to the owners of capital, then there are a lot of people are going to be left on the sidelines with nothing. How do you think we should uh, approach that?
1: Oh, ah. you know, sometimes I miss the times when my career was just how do I make my business more innovative, because I <laughs> knew the answer to that. Um, So AI is a huge issue. And I think it's important when we talk about it to remember that used well, it could really increase the happiness and living standards of the entire human race. As you said, the question is, who gets to decide how it's deployed and who gets to reap the returns from owning the robots? So I think... If if I were running things, I would really explore diffusing the ownership of capital. Um, this is a big topic. Right. And I don't I, I think there are a number of, of problems with just leaping into it with both hands. Firstly, I'm not a big fan of state ownership of the means of production. I've read too much about the history of China before they turned capitalist and Russia. Um, I, I'm too much a fan of capitalism. Do you so see I, a
0: role, though, for the state in things like utilities, like transport, like energy and so on? I
1: I do. I do see a role for the state in, in natural monopolies and in utilities, but I also see an immense role for the state in antitrust policy, in um, making sure there's not too much money in politics so business doesn't control politics. Um, but sort of, if if my vision is a strong private sector, but one where ownership of capital is widely diffused. Now, partly Capital is diffused. It's in pension plans and places like that. And the people running the pension plans have been running the plans for short-term return, short-term return, short-term return, Mm -hmm. since we can talk about. So one thing is the people running the money need to think about issues like AI and the long term. And we could talk about ESG and the movement to think about externalities as something investors should be thinking about. But the other route we could go down is to... um, make sure that firms have more employee ownership. And I think that's potentially very interesting. It can be done badly. It can be done well. But done well, I think it could have multiple good effects. Um, I have a colleague called Richard Freeman who has a book called The Citizen's Share, which is all about um, employees owning shares in their own company. And I talk in the book about a number of firms where Uh, the employees basically own the company and have decision rights. And, you know, it's not paradise. There are all kinds of issues. But done well, I think it could make a big difference. Um, I also think we should have very thoughtful government policy about how we deploy AI, about how we think about transitioning workers who are affected. We should have massive R&D support for how do we make sure that AI is augmenting human labor, that it's a complement to human labor, Uh, not a substitute. And that's not a pipe dream. I have a great friend called Susan Helper at Case Western Reserve who is working on, so how do we think about AI in a way that really improves the productivity of the humans we already have rather than replaces them? And that feels to me the kind of avenue we need to go in. But to the point you opened with, it's not about letting the free market rip. The free market's an unbelievable source of productivity and growth and entrepreneurship, but it needs to be in partnership with the government and in partnership with um, a voice for labor and in partnership with civil society, because AI is absolutely something we need to deal with. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen.
0: Rebecca, you've given us a vast range of really interesting ideas I'm gonna close by asking you, what should we do next? What can we as an individual do next? Um, What should business do next? And what can we do to perhaps influence business to do it?
1: So I think it's super important that we individually start to act. I think the most important thing we can do is vote and get politically active. But I think it's also really important if, uh, to use our roles as consumers and as employees, and perhaps as managers or owners to begin to move our society in this direction. One of the things the pandemic has shown us, which I think is so striking, is how much humans care about the common good. You know, if you ask people, and there was a wonderful survey done, um, actually here in the UK just last year, do you think of yourself as more oriented to the common good or more selfish? It turns out that roughly 71% of people say, you know, I think I'm more oriented to the common good. And and so I think there's there's something in humans that wants to focus on the long term. But at the same time, 77% of people said, well, everyone else is not like me. Everyone else is selfish. So I think stepping up as a consumer and saying, I will only buy from firms whose values I share. And as an employee, talking to CEOs, the single biggest driver of change over the last couple of years has been their employees. Mm -hmm. CEOs have said, you know, I don't care so much about climate change, but my employees are all over it. And so I looked into it and it turned out that I could do all kinds of things. So we tend to think CEOs run firms. I actually think the people in the firm actually ultimately have a huge amount of control. So where you work, check things out, pick a project that you think would make a difference. It's these small kinds of actions that then get scaled up across the organization that really make a big difference. And I don't want to forget what we as individuals should do, because we know from social psychology that if the person across the street from me is flying less because they think it's the right thing to do, I'm much less likely to fly less. And one of the things that needs to happen is we all need to support support each other in learning to behave in new ways um, for the sake of our children and our children's children and I think if we can get that ball rolling it will be very powerful.
0: Rebecca thank you very much now as I said to start with your book is called Reimagining Capitalism Uh, am I right it's published at the end of this month April? It is Uh, April
1: 28th.
0: Okay it's published in the US is it published in the UK as well?
1: Absolutely. Penguin Random House is bringing it out April 28th. Um, it will be only an e-book and um, an audible edition on the 28th in the UK. Mm-hmm. The paper edition will be out in September.
0: Well, Rebecca, I'm most grateful to you for, for taking the time.
1: Actually, thank you very much. And thank you for asking me questions about inequality as well, because I know you're mostly a climate person. I, I tend to think of them as intimately linked, that essentially we've lost sight of public goods mm-hmm. and that we won't fix the climate change problem unless and until we also address the inequality problem. Um, and so I, I, I really like being able to talk about them both at the same time. So thanks very much.
0: It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. That's almost it for this week. But before I go, I'm delighted to tell you that we have another patron, Dave Ballas. You may remember that last week I drew your attention to an excellent account of global dimming that he published. His latest video, by the way, is on climate change and the coronavirus. He too is on Patreon, so I had a look at his site and decided to subscribe. He was good enough to subscribe to the Sustainable Futures Report in return. Welcome, Dave. If you want to be a patron, go to patreon.com sfr. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash s f r. Or for Dave's Patreon account, search for patreon.com slash just have a think. And that is it for this week. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report, and there'll be another next week.